to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're continuing our series through Luke tonight, and we're in the uh, latter part of Luke 7. Um, I uh, have a confession to make. I, ha- I um, was part of the frenzy of waiting for a new iPad uh, last week. And uh, those of you that laughed get it. Those of you that didn't laugh were like, I what? Um, but the Apple released this new device uh, on March 11th called an iPad 2 and uh, the, the truth is, I've spoken to you before about how Apple products tug at the uh, lust for material things in my heart. I've been honest with you about that. Uh, but, but here's the thing, is, is I, I decided when the first one came out last year that I wasn't going to do that because everybody knows better than to buy the first generation anything, right? And, uh, and so I, I made myself wait and wait and wait, and finally, you know, the press conference happened, and they're going to reveal the two, and, and, uh, and so I was excited about it, I, I admit. And, and part of my excitement about it was I knew they were going to put this camera in, and I thought, okay, look, I could Skype my parents. See, I'm justifying this now, you know. I could Skype my parents. Like, I couldn't Skype them with a the laptop. Of course I could. But how cool to have this thing. Anyway, so uh, I had sort of decided that I was going to get it whenever the second generation version of it came out. And so uh, Friday, I drove by the Apple store around noon, and I saw a line already forming, and I thought, I'm not going to do that. That was crazy. You know, that was crazy. Slaves to the Apple, you know, <laughs> hype machine. And then uh, 4 o'clock rolled by, and if you know this, they were releasing it exactly at 5 o'clock, whatever your local time was. And so at 4 o'clock, I started to get a little twitchy at home. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, i got to go do something to, to try to get this, you know. And so I heard that the Target up north was going to get some in, and I thought, I'm going to be smarter than the masses, than the hoi polloi, you know. I, I, they're all going to line up like lemmings outside the Mac store, but not me. I'll go to Target where no one will think of it, and, I, you know, I'll get my iPad, and there'll be no, you know, big production with it. Well, I, I get there, and the guy says, yeah, our shipment didn't come in. So I'm looking at my watch. It's like 4.15, and he says, but we think the one down on uh, Powers and Carefree has, is going to get him in. I'm like, okay. I get in my car, I drive down there, I'm the sixth person in line, and I'm thinking, okay, it's pretty good, and I'm going to get it, and then, and then the guy says, we've, we've got the box, but there's five oh. in the box, and so, and so I said, okay, I'm going to the Mac store, and I, 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 I listen, I, so I, I drove to the Mac store, but at this point, the line if you can picture the shops at Briargate, it goes all the way around the corner and into the back alley. And uh, I, I, I'm thinking, do I really want to do this? You know? And I'm seeing people that I know in line and not wanting to abuse my pastoral privilege. Uh, I, I, I didn't say anything, but, um, but I had this, uh, someone said, no, don't worry, they're going to have tons. And so I stand in line for an hour uh, and I get about 50 people away and they say, we're sold out. So, so tragic, right? So, so it's fine. Saturday goes by. Sunday goes by. Uh, word on the street is they're going to get new supplies in on Monday or Tuesday. So I stand in line for a bit on Monday. They say, no, we're not getting any in. 
A Tuesday morning, I thought, oh, you know, I have a little free time. I'm supposed to be working on the sermon, but hey, uh, you know, I can think about the text while I'm in line, you know. So I grabbed my commentary. I'm being... Anyway, okay. Uh, so I grabbed my commentary, and I stand in line, and I'm reading this commentary on Luke, you know, as I'm waiting in line. And, uh, and, uh, and then I realize, uh, the, or the line starts moving, and I'm getting closer and closer, and then they say, you know, we don't have the kind you're, you're wanting. We only have the kind that comes with the cell phone plan, and it costs a hundred and whatever more, and I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Okay, so, so I get out of line, and then I think, Target. They, they never got their ship. So at lunchtime, I run over to Target, they, I, and they say, you know, we're going to get it in around before two o'clock, so I'm calling them every hour. This is becoming an obsession. And yeah, you think, so I, I get to Target at around 1.30 and the shipping guy is looking at me and this other woman who's standing there and he says, what are you guys doing here? I'm like, well, we're, we're just, we were told you were getting a shipment in today. And he said, from Apple? I'm like, yes. Yeah, it's not here today. So I left and I left, you know, a little bit deflated and, um, and I thought this is ridiculous. You know, what's, what's happening to me? And I posted something on Facebook about being frustrated with not knowing when more iPads were coming in. And this, this guy writes me a message and says, actually, I have an extra one that I bought because, for another person. And it turns out that, that guy backed out on him, and he was trying to sell it to someone else, and that person backed out on him. And he said, must be yours. I'll sell it to you for what I paid for it. You know, so the, the long story short is I got it. But here's the thing. It's ridiculous to, to do that, right? To have this sort of, ah, oh, I'm waiting, I got to get this. You know. and, and I tell you this whole embarrassing story so you can understand that I am human and sinful like you. I have my own points of weaknesses. But I also tell you this because the feeling of waiting and waiting and waiting and then being disappointed is a lousy, lousy feeling uh, for much more serious things in life, for things like... Uh, a sickness that you're praying and praying and praying and praying for and then nothing happens or a marriage you're praying and praying and praying will turn around and then nothing happens and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and it doesn't turn out. It's one thing to spend a lot of time waiting. It's another thing to get to the end of the waiting and then get what you think is the thing and then all of a sudden it's not what you expected. It'd be like me waiting and waiting and waiting, and the guy says, look, I got the iPad, you want to buy it? And I buy it from him, and it turns out it's not a touchscreen or whatever, you know, it doesn't glow or there's no camera, or whatever the case may be. You've waited, you've waited, you've waited, you got it, and then it's not what you thought it was going to be. This is a little bit uh, like what's happening to John the Baptist. He's obviously the one that has been sent to prepare the way for Jesus, and he is uh, Jesus' cousin, right, in, in some sort of a, a way. And, 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 and he's, he knows that this Jesus is someone special. And yet John uh, is going through this crisis moment of saying, wait, wait, is this, are you the one? And we're going to read that text in just a minute. But just to kind of bring us up to, to speed in this chapter here at Luke 7, one of the questions the gospel writers are trying to answer or seems like they're trying to answer is this question of who is Jesus? I mean, who really is him? Let's, let's put this down. Let's put these stories down, not just in a willy-nilly sort of way, but let's put these stories together in a way that makes it clear or reveals 
who Jesus is. And so in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus at an early age, you remember this as a 12-year-old boy, becoming aware of who, or being aware of who his father is. And he says, no, look, I gotta be about my father's business. And then later on, he says of himself, uh, he reads Isaiah 61, says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. Okay, look, I am he. He says, the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. He declares he's the anointed one. And as we moved on in the book of Luke, we see him at the end of Luke 4 announcing to the demons that, he, that their time is up, basically. Delivering people from demonic oppression, announcing uh, healing. And what he's doing is he's saying, look, I'm well aware. This is who I am, the anointed one of God. I've come. There's healing. The demons are trembling. The rulers are, are the, of, of spiritual rulers are trembling. He's healing the sick in Luke 6. Toward the end of Luke 6, he calls his disciples. We've talked about several of these stories and moments. Last week, we talked about him going to heal Gentiles. And we talked about the miracles of Jesus not being these sort of uh, um, um, capricious acts. You know, sort of, oh yeah, I think I'll do that one. I don't think I'll do this one. I think, you know. No, it's Jesus very intentionally doing miracles that trigger something. Uh, in their minds that speak of who he is. And so when he heals the centurion, it's a Gentile officer, very much like Naaman, whom Elijah went to from, and healed from afar, rather. Didn't actually go to. Jesus heals the centurion from afar. When he, when he raises this widow's son in the town of Naim, he's saying, okay, remember, think of the story again of the other widow, the widow of Zarephath, whose son had died. Jesus is doing these particular miracles to say, look, I am the great prophet. In fact, they say that about him just earlier in this chapter, but he's also doing it in a way that says, look, 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 it's reaching toward the Gentiles. You may have forgotten this, but when Messiah comes, remember what Isaiah said, he would bring this blessing, bring this, 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 uh, this deliverance. It would even extend, ripple outward toward the Gentile world. And Jesus is deliberately Fulfilling these things, doing these things to say, this is who I am. But here's John, and things aren't going so good for John. And John, the last time we saw him, was baptizing people by the river and announcing repentance. And Jesus himself gets baptized by John, and, and it seems to be that all is well. Here's John saying, look, this is the one. I'm not even worthy to untie this dude's sandals. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for. And now here's John. You're familiar with this story. Verse 18 is where we'll pick it up. And John's disciples informed him about all these things. And so John called two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Um, some commentators suggest maybe John's not really disappointed. Maybe he knows he's at the end of his life and he's trying to get his disciples to segue from his ministry to Jesus's to follow Jesus. But uh, I, I think the, the, the other sort of angle in this is it's hard to miss. It really does seem like there's a tone of disappointment, maybe even a little bit of doubt in John, John's question, saying, are, are, you real, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Luke actually has this question repeated again in this next verse. And so when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to, at, to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? 
At the very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and granted sight to many who were blind. And so he answered them, Go, tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. You may be familiar with other translations that say, and blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fancy clothes? Look, those who wear fancy clothes and live in luxury are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. And now all the people who heard this, and even the tax collectors, acknowledged God's justice because they had been baptized with John's baptism. However, the Pharisees and the experts in religious law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. I'm going to explain the latter half of that, or those last couple of verses toward the end of the sermon tonight, but I want to work our way backwards just a little bit from this talk and, t- and ask first, was John it? And Jesus follows up on, by saying, oh, after saying what he's doing and what he's done, he's addressing sort of this question, what did you go out to see John? Uh, what did you, who did you think was out there in the wilderness? And this, this, this strange sort of phrase, did you go to see a reed shaking Is this what you thought? Who do you think John was? In these early centuries, the the only real mass media, if you will, of the day were coins. The way that you uh, got a message spread around was you put it on the money. Uh, We all know what's on our coins, or most of us, you know, because, oh, isn't it the eagle or the building or the whatever, you know, depending on what kind of, uh, what denomination of coin it is, okay? Um, Sophia probably has that more memorized than I do at the moment. It's kindergarten. And so, so we, 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 you know, we know this. And so for them, when Herod became king, what he printed on these coins was this image of a reed. Uh, and it was the sign of his uh, kingship sort of beginning. And so when Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Uh, perhaps it was an allusion to Herod. And he goes on and talks about fancy clothes. The ones who wear these fancy clothes live in luxury and are in king's courts. Uh, In other words, perhaps Jesus was saying, did you go out to see the next king of the Jews? Did you think John was it? Uh, Herod sort of claimed that he was this reed, you know, he had this image attached to him. Reed was sort of Herod's propaganda. He lives in a king's court and wears fancy clothes. Is Jesus saying to them, uh, hey, did you go out because you thought John was the next big thing? Did you think he was the king, the one who was going to save you? That Herod, now you've realized, is kind of a sham. And did you think John was going to be the real king? Maybe this is what Jesus is saying. But then he says, no, look, John's not Herod. He's not a king. Uh, John's a prophet. But actually more than a prophet, he's one who's a forerunner. He's coming ahead of the Messiah. Dramatic pause. He's saying, it's me. Was John it? John's not this king. 
He's a prophet, but not just any prophet, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Hint, hint. So then, is Jesus it then? The real question, the question John wanted to ask, the question John's disciples want him to ask, or or that he wants them to ask, rather. Are you the one, or do we look for another? Jesus answers by quoting, uh, we, we heard in the Old Testament reading tonight, a section, for, or a section from Isaiah 35, and Jesus is, is loosely quoting Isaiah 35, but really a number of other Isaiah passages. Uh, there's, there's Isaiah 61, most certainly, that has references to this in there, which Jesus has already read about himself in Luke 4, right? Uh, there were some writings in, in this time period in the Qumran community, the, one, the Essenes who lived out in the desert, out in the wilderness, who, who began to take these different sections of Isaiah and say, this is a job description for the Messiah. Or, or, or maybe more um, specifically, this is, he will do these things, start to heal blind eyes. They take these passages from Isaiah and say, this is how we know he's here. And so when they ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus answers in a way that maybe they would have understood. Certainly the ones influenced by the Qumrans or the Essenes would have understood those, those, those oh, he's quoting those passages. He's saying it. And Jesus says, look, you tell him, the blind can see, the lame can walk. This is starting to happen. One might wonder, well, why, why, is, it, why is Jesus speaking cryptically or is he speaking cryptically? Couldn't he just say, yes, mm-hmm, tell John yes, yes. Simple. I mean, this is a much shorter answer, uh, you know. Uh, well, maybe, and I'm throwing out some options to you here because there's, we're trying to be responsible with the text. It, it, it could be that Jesus, we know that Jesus was ca- careful about not uh, being too noticed before his time, right? He, didn't, he was careful about saying, look, look, it's not, don't get hair at all ruffled yet. I've got stuff to do before the cross. And so maybe Jesus is saying, look, let me say it to you without saying it to you, okay? Tell John, the blind can see, the lame can walk. The dead live again. This is happening. Tell him. Tell him the lepers are cleansed. Tell him the deaf hear. Tell him the poor hear the good news proclaimed to them. Tell him that it's happening. But now we have the real problem. Because if Jesus is the one, how come he's not quite doing the things they thought? Because you know the other parts of Isaiah 61 that Jesus didn't quote? There's this one little pesky phrase in Isaiah 61 along with, you know, delivering this and that. It's, the prisoner shall be released. Oh, oh Jesus, did you miss that? Well, it's good that the blind can see and the lame can walk and the lepers are cleansed and the poor. Wonderful, thank you. But there's, a, remember that line about the prisoner being released? Your cousin's in prison. So Jesus, if you're the one, did you forget part of your job description? Jesus, if you're it, how come you're not doing this? I don't get it. Imagine for a moment if we are to sort of enter this text and try to say, Spirit of God, help us, you know, sort of a sanctified imagination. Can we enter this text? And what, what must that have been like? Imagine being John and growing up with Jesus. I mean, you were the baby that leaped inside your mother's womb when Mary came. From the beginning, you sort of knew, he's it. 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John cries out. And then here, here, all of a sudden, things aren't working out so good. He's in prison because he's challenged Herod. I mean, I don't know. I I don't want to get too too much license with this, but but is it that John is bold and challenging Herod because, you know, there's all this, this sin that Herod's done and other evil things, and does John challenge Herod because he's thinking, it's okay, man. My cuz is going to be the next king. And I ain't scared. I ain't scared. My cousin is the Messiah. Like, it's cool, man. And then all of a sudden, he's in prison. Ask Jesus, is he the one or should we look for another? Ask Jesus why it isn't quite working out the way I thought. Ask Jesus why all my years of preaching and proclaiming Him have led me to this dirty, dark prison. Ask Jesus why this happened. Ask Jesus if He's the one or if we should wait for another. I think in a very real way, all of us can begin to imagine or think of the other, you know, the unmet expectations in our own lives. And think about the times when we thought, Lord, I s- sort of thought that if I went uh, and did the school of worship or went to you know, YWAM or did this thing, I just thought that this was going to work out this way. Or I sort of understood that if I did this, then you were going to do this. And wasn't this part of the deal? And are you the one or should I look for another? And maybe sometimes our disappointment comes from wrong desires or expectations. It comes because we've sort of crafted this God that, um, you know, that we can kind of uh, put our arms and wrap our arms around. You may have heard this, but, but uh, a number of years ago, uh, I'm not sure exactly when, maybe four or five years ago, they did a study of American youth. Uh, I think it was high school and college students. I think it was a combination of both. And I think it was some that were in church and others that were not. And they asked them, uh, for the ones who believed, who said, yes, we believe in God, uh, they asked them to describe this God and then describe something about this God or this faith. And they began to say certain things. Oh, we kind of believe this. Or, oh, we kind of think this. And, oh, he's sort of like this. And this is kind of how it works. And uh, these researchers compiled all the data and said, okay, let's look for the common threads here. And they came up with three words. And the words were this, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Anybody heard of it? Okay, a couple of you familiar with the study, okay? Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Now, here's kind of the idea. Moralistic, God wants me to do good. Therapeutic, God wants me to feel good. Deism, he's kind of distant. This, my friends, according to the survey, is the religion of uh, a a rising generation. Uh, Churched or not. This is the religion. That, yeah, there's a God, but he just doesn't, he just sort of want me to behave and like I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't have premarital sex and I shouldn't, you know. He just sort of wants me to do these moralistic, yeah, 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 therapeutic, but he does love me and he does really like want the best for me. And so God wants me to be happy. So if I moved in with my boyfriend, okay, deism. I mean, he's there, but he's not, and he doesn't really speak, and he's not really involved, and if I just sort of do these things, and I'll show up a couple times a year, I'll do a few nice things, give him the nod, this is kind of 
enough, right? God wants me to do good and feel good, but he's not really involved in my life. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I can tell you that for anyone who's come to Christ or grown up in church with this as your image of Christianity, you're in for disappointment. You're in for a rude awakening. There's going to be a moment where you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't be good enough. Whoa, what happens, what happens when you fail, when your moralism is not enough to sustain you? And the first time something goes wrong, and you, I, 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 this, I've had the sad, sad experience of talking with couples who within their first decade of marriage have said, oh, you, you, this affair, I never thought I'd be here, and I don't know how this exactly happened. And, it, and you have this awakening, and you realize, what can I do now that I'm not good enough? Because it was all about moralism anyway. Well, what about the therapeutic thing? It's like, well, God wants us to sort of feel good and feel better. And then what about when it doesn't feel so good? Is he distant? Is he far away? Sometimes our disappointment in God is because of wrong desires and expectations. But there are other times when our disappointment in God comes from right desires and expectations. We have this sense within us. Maybe it's because of the remnants of the image of God, the Imago Dei in us, but there's something in us that says, whoa, wait, no. Listen, man, I, I know I don't have it all figured out, but I know that that was not supposed to happen. You say, yeah, no, that, that's, that's true. And I don't want us to pretend that we don't know anything about God and he's just this, oh, man, he's a huge mystery. We don't know anything about him. And, and it's just, I, I don't know. No, sometimes there's disappointment because we do know something about him. And we do know that he's loving, and we do know that he's good, and we do know that he's near, and we do know, and yet it isn't all quite playing out the same way. Wait a second. I, it, you, I, I. And so there's, 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 I think there's two different paths that we can come to the same place of, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus gives an answer about the sick being healed as a way of saying the kingdom of God has broken in. The kingdom of God has broken in. There is this thing that we, have to, that we see in Jesus' preaching over and over again that he's saying these phrases that are linked with Isaiah and Isaiah talks about when God's rule comes, when God expresses his rule, these are the signs of it. You're going to see righteousness. You're going to see justice. You're going to see peace. You're going to see these things. And so when Jesus says these things, he's saying the kingdom of God is now. It's here. It's broken in. The wait is over. You're at the front of the line. You're the generation that gets to see it. He's telling them this. The kingdom is now. It's broken in. Remember last week's verse, how, what they said. They said, look, God is visiting his people to rescue them. You remember this? This was that verse from earlier on in Luke 7. Jesus means to tell us that. Look, I'm here. I've come. The kingdom of God is now. And yet, the kingdom of God is not yet. There is this fuller moment, this more complete arrival, this culminating 
moment. We heard it in the New Testament reading tonight, the day when there is no more death, when every tear is wiped away, when all things are made new. There is this moment that's coming, so here we are in between the now and the not yet, and it's sort of, yes, it's breaking in, but not yet, and no, is it here? Yes, and not. And I got to tell you, in this in-between, there are some disappointments. The tension of living in this in-between is to say, yes, God and his kingdom and his rule has broken in through Jesus, and yet it will culminate at his return. And here we are in the midst of it. Uh, when I used to, um, when I, I lived out here for a year before Holly and I got married and she was still in school in Tulsa, and um, I made the drive once from here to Tulsa. I'm not much of a road trip dude. Um, I, I know it's an American thing, and so I ought to get used to it. But I heard, I heard someone make a remark that someone, uh, it was a British guy that said, you Americans think that 100 years is a long time. Uh, we Brits think that 100 miles is a long way, you know. Uh, we don't drive, you know. And so that's sort of the way I, I grew up, too. It's like we don't do road trips. Like 100 miles? Are you kidding me? Is there a train? I mean, I don't want to drive this, you know. So I'm not much of a driver. But, but I, I did the whole drive from here to Tulsa. It's 9 or 10 hours, and I, and I drove it. I had another guy with me, but I drove it the whole way. It was sort of this thing I had to prove to myself. And um, I, I, I'm weird. Uh, so... But the drive from here to Tulsa, how many of you have made it, or here to Oklahoma, okay? There's this one miserable stretch. It's called I-70, and it's called Kansas. <laughs> I'm sorry, no offense to Kansas, but it's a tough stretch to drive. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a Nebraska stretch that's not too different. Uh, you might get confused which road you're on. But, but there's something about this. When the closer that you get to, what is it? Is it Wichita, whenever the, the t- exchanges and you start going south? Salina, yeah. Okay, as soon as, and Salina, you know, it's not like they're, woo, Salina, you know, but, but uh, sorry, no offense, but, 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 the, but you do get excited when you see signs for Salina, and you, and you get excited, why? Because you know that then you're closer, you're going to get to get off I-70, you know. Um, listen, one of the best things you can see when you're on that long weary road is a sign that says you're close. The New Testament calls miracles what? Signs. Signs. Not guarantees. Not, you know, party tricks. Signs. What is it a sign of? When Jesus says, tell them, tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. What's he saying? Salina, five miles away. (laughs) You're closer than you think. The kingdom is arriving. It's here, but it's not yet. But it's here, but it's not yet. And here we are living in this in-between moment. How do we do this? How do we live in this? The closing of one day, Night is falling on this present evil age. Dawn is rising on the age to come. And yet here we are in this strange in-between. How do we live as children of the light, Paul says? How do we live like it's daytime while all around the world is sure that it's night? What Jesus says in the second half of these last few verses of our text tonight, I think, is where we'll camp for a moment. 
And he says, look, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Now all the people who heard this, even the tax collectors, acknowledged God's justice because they had been baptized with John's baptism. Stop for a moment. Jews don't get baptized. Gentiles who want to become Jews get baptized. When John was telling them, repent and be baptized, he was saying, you failed as covenant people. You kind of need to re-enter. Take the low road. You're just as good as outsiders now. And do you think there were a lot of people offended by this? You bet. Mainly the Pharisees, the experts in religious law who rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. Oh, whoa, John, be baptized? I'm a Pharisee. I have many leather-bound scrolls. I'm kind of a big deal. Okay? I don't need to repent of anything. (laughs) And yet the tax collectors... And the sinners, they had no trouble saying, yeah, oh, repent, you bet, we need it. And Jesus is saying, look, John was just preparing you for this. The least of the ones who's in my kingdom who says yes to me is even greater than anyone before. You may have had Pharisee status before, but if you reject Christ, it doesn't count for anything. You may have been the big deal, but look, If you reject me and your need for me, sorry. But even the tax collector who says yes is greater than the biggest deal in the previous age. Does this make sense? Did you think John was a big deal? He was. But even the tax collectors are greater when they come and repent and say yes to Jesus. This line that Jesus says after quoting Isaiah to John is, Blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me, is a strange phrase. I didn't know, maybe, you're thinking, that people could fall away on account of Jesus. I thought they'd fall away in spite of Jesus, maybe. But fall away because of Jesus. Do you remember what Simeon prophesied over Jesus in Luke, was it Luke 2? says, this child is destined to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. Blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. Later, Paul and Peter would pick up an Isaiah phrase and say, look, he is the stone that the builders rejected. He became a stumbling stone, a rock that they tripped upon. Whoa! Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, but the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews. Do you mean there were some who saw Jesus and fell away because of him? Yes. Because everything in their messianic hope said, all here, all now, when he comes, game over. He's going to kill the Romans, not be killed by the Romans. How can this be? Jesus says, blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. The cross 
is a stumbling stone. God would send his son, and he'd die for our sin, and that would somehow, no, 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 that's, no, that's, no, that's foolish. And Jesus says, blessed are those who will not fall away on account of me. This is our Savior. This is our Messiah. How do we live in this kingdom? I think part of it is to say, to recognize and accept God's sovereign saving rule. We humble ourselves. Surrender our expectations to the living Christ. Humble ourselves. And say and surrender to the living Christ. Jesus, I believe that you're the Messiah, okay? Look, I, I, I get it. I get the signs. I know that you're the one. And I know that what's coming is better than what is. I believe that. I know you're not a sadist. I know you're not, you don't delight in, in, in this pain and suffering thing. I know one day you're going to end it all. I know you will. And, and right now we're in this in-between. But God, to live in your rule to recognize and accept your sovereign saving rule, we humble ourselves, surrender our expectations to the living Christ. In other words, to enjoy God's rule, we must accept that He rules. To enjoy, what's the kingdom? Jesus is saying, the least in the kingdom. Well, that sounds so grand. What's the kingdom? It's God's rule. And if you want to enjoy His rule... This just sounds so simple. We've got to accept that he does rule. That he rules. That it's already breaking in. There are signs of it. We do pray for the sick. We do pray for healing. We do pray for miracles because we know Salina is five miles away. C.S. Lewis uses the example, the illustration of living by the train tracks. If you live by a train track, especially the old trains, your apartment building is going to rattle a little bit because the train's coming. It's a sign. The kingdom is arriving. We feel it even now. The sick are being healed. The, the lame walk, it's happening. But God, there's still some disappointment. Yeah, I know. But He rules. He rules. And one day, it's already begun to dawn, but one day it will all be right and all be new. But blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. Amen? Let's pray. Sorry for going a few minutes over. The other unintended consequence of preaching backwards is I don't see the clock. Would you take a moment and um, if it helps you to open your palms up, you know, sort of a way to say, God, I'm, I, I do surrender. Jesus, I don't want to be like the Pharisees say, I'm so good, I'm too good, I, I don't need you. Yeah. To be like the tax collectors and say, oh, Lord, I, whew, I want to be in this. I am in. I, if you, we've said yes to Jesus, we're part of your family, we're part of your kingdom, but maybe for all of us, or for most of us, we just need a reminder that living in God's rule means embracing the fact that he rules that he's the one that rules. To surrender again to the living Christ. To let go of the expectations. God, I, I thought it was going to be like 
this. Spirit of God, help us to embrace the rule of God in our hearts, in our lives, even when it's different from what we expect, even when it doesn't quite play out the way we want. But now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to make us stand blameless before the throne on that day. So may the Spirit of God keep us from falling. May we fall on the rock and be saved instead of the rock falling on us. May we be low and humble and broken tonight. We will not fall away on account of you, the Savior who died, the Savior who took our sin, went to the cross, and died. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.